0: You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear Nuclear energy, energy. natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar panels, wind turbines.
1: How do you maintain required levels of growth in an industrialist or capitalist system whilst trying to safeguard a climate system fit for human existence? Making sure that people actually have their needs taken care of is really the core priority of the energy system in general.
0: For April 19th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Most of us, and for the longest time I was no exception to this, tend to receive energy journalism I think in a fairly passive way. We assume that the articles we read and the podcasts we listen to about various energy fuels and technologies are basically just straight reporting on what's happening in the world. A new oil field was discovered, a new wind or solar farm was built, everybody's investing in hydrogen production, EV sales are taking off, and so on. In fact, I'd guess that most of the news stories we've reported on this show are of that kind, as are many of the topics we've covered. Likewise, for pretty much all other energy podcasts, especially the ones that amount to little more than long-form advertisements for particular companies and their products and services, although they may not be billed as such. After all, what could be easier than pitching some softball questions to the CEO of an energy services company and letting them just talk about their work? We don't do that on this show, mainly because we feel this is the contract we've made with our paying subscribers. We've promised you a non-commercial show, and except for the rare occasions when there's no way to cover a story except to interview someone in the business, we've been careful to stay on the non-commercial side of the line. Indeed, we've turned down hundreds of pitches trying to place someone from a commercial company on this show to talk about their business. PR agents who try to place commercial guests on shows like ours, offering so-called advertorial under the guise of regular journalistic content, apparently do a very robust business these days. In fact, if you take a fresh critical look at the articles and podcasts you consume about energy, you'll realize that nearly all of them fall into the category of technology stories, if not pure advertorial. Sure, some are more about the policy and the politics of the energy transition, but even they often tend to be about the policy and the politics surrounding a particular type of energy technology, whether it be drilling for oil and gas, or putting up a new wind or solar farm. But what if this technological framing of energy journalism is causing us to miss the boat on the most important aspects of the energy transition? What if the most fundamental and transformative and enduring aspects of the energy transition aren't about technology at all, but rather policy and investment, especially at the local level? What if the most important solutions aren't sexy technologies like hydrogen and next-generation nukes, but extremely unglamorous solutions like wall cavity insulation and wider sidewalks? What if the things we need most have no natural champions in industry or political leadership? Who will advocate for them? And how can we build that advocacy into our institutional decision-making in an enduring way? Our guest today is a researcher who's thought deeply about these questions and published extensively on them. Dr. Marie-Claire Brisbois is a senior lecturer in energy policy at the Science Policy Research Unit and co-director of the Sussex Energy Group at the University of Sussex, England. Her work examines the questions of power, politics, and influence in energy, water, and climate governance, including broader issues of social change and public participation in low-carbon transitions. The peer-reviewed research she has co-authored, which you can find linked into the show notes, is really interesting, and I think it suggests important changes that we need to make to our institutions of governance, as well as our investment strategies for the energy transition. It gave me a lot to think about, and I know today's conversation will give you much to think about as well. Then in the news segment, we'll uh, talk about a bunch of technologies, of course, After all, that's what nearly all news coverage of the energy transition consists of, and and what can I do but cover it for what it is. We'll see how the EU's ban on internal combustion engines is coming along. We'll note another European effort to ban oil and gas-based heating systems. We'll ask whether China's building spree of coal-fired power plants is really what it seems. We'll have a little follow-up to episode 194 on the material requirements of the energy transition. And we'll check out a new application of a very old energy technology. But before we go to the interview, we want to remind our annual listeners that there are two ways you can share the Energy Transition show with a friend or colleague. First, every annual subscriber has three share links per year that they can give to someone else. Each share link will give the recipient one free month of access to the show, which will let them listen to the two most recent full episodes. And second, there's a simple form on our website that you can use to give a year's subscription to a friend. To access both of these new features, just log into our website, click on your name in the upper right-hand corner, and go to the Manage Subscription page where you'll find the Gift Accounts button. And if you're an annual subscriber, don't forget to post any open jobs you're trying to fill or look at the current openings on our exclusive, members-only job board. As I record this, there are openings for energy data researchers, project managers, graduate assistants, executive roles, and more. And now, our conversation with Marie-Claire Brisbois, recorded March 6th, 2023. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Marie-Claire, to the Energy Transition Show.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me on.
0: All right, well, you've studied the intersection of power, politics, and environmental decision-making for more than a decade, and you published a Viewpoint article in Nature last year, which had me nodding vigorously in agreement on a number of points, not least being your core argument that we should be deploying solutions that are known to be cost-effective today with all due haste, and not putting our hopes in new technologies that are not yet commercial, like hydrogen, CCS, and next-generation nuclear. And as our longtime listeners know, I've been hammering away at that point since we launched this show more than seven years ago, which is not to say that we shouldn't be investing in nascent technologies or anything of that sort, just that we shouldn't waste a minute waiting for them while there are other solutions that work that we can invest in today. But there was another somewhat adjacent point that you made in that piece that really got my attention. You asked why governments neglect proven practices, which you call unglamorous solutions, and instead bet big on technological fixes that are unlikely to arrive in time. You mentioned a couple of examples like doing energy efficiency retrofits for homes and mode shifting in transportation, for example, to get people out of cars and onto their bikes and feet. So how would you define these unglamorous solutions in general?
1: Basically, they're things that we can do to reduce energy demand or address unsustainable systems and behaviours that use well-established technologies that we already have, that people are usually quite familiar with, and that we know already that they work. We know that they reduce carbon. We know often that they have popular support because people recognize that they save money or improve our health, but we still don't seem to be able to get our act together to roll them out at scale.
0: Hmm. Okay. So in your article, you said that unglamorous solutions have few politically powerful advocates. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, it's sort of at the core of a lot of what we're facing. And It's basically a question of money. So these sorts of solutions, they don't make anybody a lot of money. They don't make concentrated profits. The benefits are often quite diffuse. So if you put in bike lanes, you increase public transportation, the benefits go to everybody and they're not necessarily going directly to increase profits to shareholders in the same way something like rolling out EVs or rolling out hydrogen might. They're also often solutions that have benefits across different policy domains. And so it can be hard for someone making decision-making on, for example, energy to justify solutions that would have a lot of benefits, but those benefits would fall in an area like health in terms of reduced costs because people have better mental and physical health. But the other thing is that if we actually ended up implementing these unglamorous solutions, it would really shake up a lot of very comfortable and profitable businesses and markets. So something like insulating homes means that we'll be buying less energy for heat, and that is not something that's temporary. That lasts for as long as the home lasts, and so that's a decrease in the amount Of energy sold for quite a long time. In the same way, building a network of bike lanes or good walkable infrastructure, public transportation, that would mean that we provide an alternative to a massive car industry and all the bits and pieces that go along with it, such as repairs and fueling. Repairing electronics is another example. It would mean we'd stop buying so much stuff, and there are huge consumer goods economies that are built up around these systems. So at the same time, we'd be solving a lot of problems around climate, definitely, and carbon, but also things like pollution from just consumer goods, addressing mental and physical health, addressing issues related to mineral extraction and mining, all these things. We'd also be reshaping the economy as we know it, and there are a lot of rich and powerful people and systems that are built up around rich and powerful people who would end up being not quite so rich and powerful. So it really is a case where a lot of people stand to lose in a quite defined way from making a
0: transition. You know, it occurs to me now that there's a fundamental issue here that we tend to rely on capitalistic motivations to guide investment. And What we're talking about here is the need for investment into things that are not necessarily easily aligned with capital investment or that are more often associated with public investment. And that has important policy implications, doesn't it?
1: It really does. And it's not necessarily about not having economic good come out of these investment decisions. It's just about who the economic good goes to. So for example, to do... Home energy retrofits. There are thousands of jobs, hundreds of thousands of jobs in the offing, depending at the scale that you look at. But they're jobs mostly that go to small businesses, to tradespeople, to installers. People who would come in and do things like put in the insulation or put in the heat pumps. They're not going to a single company that has shareholders and lobbyists and a voice in government who are trying to have their interests realized. They often might have an association, but it's a much more diffuse economic benefit than for something like hydrogen that you then put through the gas network.
0: Exactly, it's a lot harder for an oil major to capitalize on installing millions of heat pumps. Okay, so one of the reasons that I was attracted to your article is that it was nicely aligned with something I'd posted on Mastodon recently, which I'll quote here. After two decades of energy analysis and punditry, I conclude that most readers and listeners are attracted to technology stories because they feel like they understand them. So we have hype cycles around fracking and hydrogen and nukes, etc. But the things that actually matter where the real energy transition happens are not technology stories at all. They're process and regulation and legislative stories that bore our tech-obsessed audiences. <laughs> it's a real conundrum. This is something I've been thinking about a lot actually, especially with the way that people really seem to want a tidy, glamorous story about a technology, preferably a magical silver bullet technology that eliminates carbon emissions and meets all our energy needs in one fell swoop forever. Whereas, what really makes the difference in the final analysis is the unglamorous, dirty work of fighting for policies through, for example, a local utility commission, or electing and persuading legislators to stand for climate policies, or for that matter, championing the most boring of all policy tax policy. (laughs) But that's what really makes the difference. That's what causes the money to flow. So I guess what I would add to your list of unglamorous solutions is the actual sausage making of policy, especially local policy. And I wonder if there's anything that can be done about this. I mean, aren't people always going to be attracted to sexy technology stories and bored by the process and policy issues that really matter?
1: Yeah, Well, I mean, I'm not sure that local policy and process issues are always boring, or at least if you go to sort of a local council meeting, there's a lot more yelling there than there tends to be in (laughs) Parliament.
0: Well, this is true.
1: (laughs) But on the point that people are more attracted to sexy technology stories, I think that's true, but I think it's a question of a couple different things. And one of them is that even though we hate change, we're also... Desperate for change. But when it comes to thinking about making substantial behavior changes, it can be really difficult to think about what life could look like or would look like in a carbon constrained world. So it's very attractive to think about having a magic bullet that is different forms of nuclear or hydrogen or something where we'll still be able to drive, we'll still be able to fly around the world, we can still have access to produce. That is not in season, but at all times of year because it gets transported around the globe. And it's because it looks like life now. And so these easy technological fixes are things that happen upstream. They happen before we need to think about turning the lights on and off. And all the ideas we have of what things like more local supply chains or using less carbon in our lives come from like a couple centuries ago when we were living very, very local lives and often pastoral, but not the lives that we're used to now. And it's hard to visualize what life could look like, even though we have all sorts of new technology. We wouldn't be going back to some world where we don't have communication, where we would be living that rustically without sort of the things that we need to live comfortably, the progress that we've made. But it will look different. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be hard to think about the future and not know what's coming because we're not, as a species, we're not great at change for good reason, because we want to be able to stay safe and we want to make sure that we can provide our basic needs, even though life could be better if we do things differently.
0: So there's an interesting idea that comes out of what you just said to me, which is that there's sort of a failure of imagination here, or maybe put a more positive spin, there's there's a need for imaginative work in terms of how we perceive our society and our role in the world. And maybe even that's a task for not just social scientists of various kinds and journalists and so on, but also of artists who help us to understand our place in the world and the way that our societies should function. What do you think about that idea?
1: I think you're absolutely right. And there is work going on on what the future could look like all over the world right now, and it's really an exciting space. So I have I have a colleague in the Netherlands who's working on video games and on creating climate futures through gaming and envisioning the way that things could be different. And there's projects looking at art and literature and music and creating ideas of what could be different. That's also a lot of what's behind movements towards energy communities, where they're trying to create a different world, where they do things differently in sort of a microcosm, where you try living differently, so that you can get a sense of what it would actually look like to live in a world where things could potentially be more local along different vectors. So not necessarily being cut off for the world, but having your consumer goods exchanges be more local or your food system be more local. And in the academic literature, there's a lot of work on what we call prefiguring systems, which is essentially coming up with these ideas and visions and pictures of how things could be done differently. So the work is in progress, but it's also, it's a back and forth, and it's in fits and starts, because we're testing it out as we go, and more and more people are thinking about how we could do things differently. And an example of that, maybe a really current one, is the four-day workweek trials that have been going on in the UK. Right. And they've just finished the first round of them, where, where a number of companies, mostly smaller companies tried out a four-day work week, and most of them are going to continue with the trial. And at the beginning, there was a lot of not knowing if this would work and skepticism and how could this possibly work? You pay people the same amount of money, but they only work four days instead of five. And they found that there's increased productivity, people are much happier, people have time to do things, physical and mental health improve, people take less time off because of being sick. So it's proving that things can be done differently but it's a con- there's a constant need for this experimentation and there's a constant need to make space for it one of the reasons why that 4-day work week trial was able to go ahead is that people got on board and it was a test it was framed as a test you try this for a little while if it doesn't work you can throw it out and there needs to be those spaces of trying to do things differently to show ourselves, essentially, that yes, we can do these things, the world's not going to fall apart, we can make things better for ourselves in terms of climate, yes, but also in terms of general well-being.
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the more I've studied the energy transition, the more this question of a need for imaginative futures work starts to pop out. I mean, there's probably an infinite number of ways from a technology perspective that we could run the world without burning fossil fuels and allowing their emissions to escape into the atmosphere. On this podcast, we've explored numerous models for how to run a power grid without carbon emissions, even without carbon capture technologies or hydrogen or advanced nuclear generators or anything else than what is commercially available today. For example, we discussed such models in episodes 29, 42, 46, 74, 95, 131, 146, 172, 173, and 188. A lot of those discussions acknowledge the fact that there are multiple universes that solve the problem. There are multiple solution sets that get you where you need to go. And What these modeling exercises show ultimately is that the solutions that you end up with is not really about specific technologies, but about human arrangements, about market design, market participation rules, regulation, legislation, incentives, and of course, tax policy change those things, and you end up using a different mix of technologies to get to the same outcome. But that must not be a story that excites an audience, because I don't think I have ever, in all of my years of studying energy, which is two decades now, read a single piece of journalism that makes that point. Instead, basically, every story is of the form, these technologies can't do X, but they can do Y, so we need to deploy this other specific set of technologies. Again, I wonder why that is. I mean... Maybe it's just because, as I mentioned in my Mastodon post, people feel like they understand technologies, everyone is an armchair expert on technologies, (laughs) you know, especially generalist journalists with no particular expertise in energy, or maybe it's just because the journalism about energy is influenced or dominated by particular commercial entities with particular technological assets that they want to defend or advance. Maybe we're letting energy industries dominate the very framing of the conversation by talking about technologies instead of the process stuff. What do you think? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions which include full access to our entire back catalogue of full length episodes are just sixty dollars a year. Monthly subscriptions are six ninety nine a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for seven dollars each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As of this writing on March 6th, The European Union's plan to ban new internal combustion engine, or ICE, cars starting in 2035 has been stymied by a last-minute intervention by the German automotive industry. The vote on carbon rules in cars in early March was supposed to be a formality after a deal on the ICE ban was struck between the bloc's 27 member states and parliament in October. Decarbonizing transport is an essential part of the EU's goal to cut emissions by 55% this decade on the way to climate neutrality by 2050. But the German auto industry employs about 800,000 people and has revenue of about 411 billion euros, or $437 billion, easily making it the largest segment of the economy. Auto industry advocates have urged the Free Democratic Party, or FDP, the junior partner in German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's three-party alliance, to oppose the outright ban on ICE vehicles. Instead, they want to allow ICE vehicles to continue to be sold, provided they consume not fossil fuels, but so-called e-fuels, synthetic liquid fuels made from hydrogen produced with renewable electricity. FDP officials apparently believe they can raise their political profile by siding with the automotive industry. Opponents of the e-fuels exemption rightly point out that they are a waste of renewable electricity, since a good deal of it would be lost in the conversion to e-fuels. They argue that the use of renewable electricity should be prioritized toward hard-to-decarbonize sectors instead. The EU has been struggling to come up with assurances that would assuage the FDP, but it is constrained by a tight timeline ahead of EU elections next year. The bloc is due to review the regulation by 2026, but that is understood to be too far off for the German government. Schultz has been in talks with the European Union to resolve the dispute, and EU President Ursula von der Leyen has called the discussions good and constructive. Item 2. Another ban has been hotly debated in Germany, and that's a proposal by economics minister Robert Habeck of the Green Party to ban new oil or gas-fired heating systems starting in 2024. The ban would also require existing fossil-fueled heating systems to be replaced by 2045 at the latest, and require that an existing heating system that uses... fossil Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.